Support for this podcast has been provided by Alliance Bernstein Investment Management and Research, making money meaningful. Had I wasn't too focused on Hatzalah and saving lives, as a paramedic, we'd be worth $70 billion today because essentially, essentially what we did was, and people can understand this, is what we did was we invented Uber before they even invented the smartphone. This is Startup Stories from the Startup Nation. My name is Yigal Marcus. Thank you for joining us. In this podcast, we'll meet the entrepreneurs who have personified the economic miracle known as the Startup Nation, the State of Israel. We'll learn about the culture which helped incubate them and their ideas. We'll learn of their successes and of course their failures. And we'll explore why it is that Israel develops some of the leading innovators of our time. When I was a volunteer emergency medical technician in my relative youth, we were taught that one of the most important issues in responding to a medical emergency was to safely get to the patient as soon as possible. When you dial for an ambulance, every minute counts. And when you're the one waiting for an ambulance to arrive, every second feels like an hour. In Israel, with its more challenging terrain, it can often take up to 20 minutes for an ambulance to arrive on scene. And by then, it can be too late. In 2006, Dove Meisel and Ellie Beer recognized that emergency medical rescuers need not arrive in an ambulance, and that too often a lifesaver was actually in close proximity to the victim. And so, they set out to solve a complex problem of matching those suffering medical emergencies with trained lifesavers who are in close proximity to them. They founded an organization called United Atzala, a technologically advanced all-volunteer national emergency medical service that seeks to get their responders to the scene of an emergency in 90 seconds or less, and in, in many cases, unconventional ways. Hatzalah means to save in Hebrew. And today, United Hatzalah has thousands of volunteer members all over the country. But United Hatzalah is much more than that. As they grew the nonprofit organization, Ellie and Dove realized that their technology had the capacity to re-engineer how EMS services are provided around the world. And United Hatzalah has started exporting their technology to other countries. And they have also responded to natural disasters around the world. They have received awards from Europe and Panama for their life-saving accomplishments. And they have attracted the attention of celebrities like Jay Leno, who helped them raise $5 million a few years ago. And in 2019, United Atzala received the Builders of Zion Award from a prominent organization called Nefesh Benefesh. This is their story. We're here today with Dove Meisel, one of the co-founders of Ihud Hatzalah, which is in English, United Hatzalah. Dove, thank you very much for joining us today. I, I know you're a busy person, and I really appreciate the time that you're giving us to, to really tell us the story of, of how I did this. Thank you very much. The pleasure is mine to be here and Great. share. 
Let's start with you, like I always do with, with my uh, interviewees. Uh, tell me a little bit about your, your childhood and your, and your background. So first of all, today, I'm mar happily married. I'm going to go on my 18th anniversary next month. And I live with my lovely wife and four kids in the town Ramla, which is right outside of Tel Aviv, not far from the airport. Um, That's Ramla, not Ramallah. Not to be mistaken with <laughs> Ramallah, yeah, yeah. People know Ramla is the first sign as you leave the airport towards Jerusalem is the first exit from the interchange. So right, right there, yeah. Um, and yeah, I come to Jerusalem every day, where it's actually where I was born and, uh, and raised here in Jerusalem, in a nice uh, neighborhood of Beit Vagan, where I uh, got to know my best friend, colleague, and partner basically through life, Eli Beer. Now, your, your accent is actually a little bit too good to be... Uh, well, my, Sabra my real is answer reporting. is I watch a lot of movies, but uh, <laughs> actually my parents are, are both Americans and they had made Aliyah um, before the Yom Kippur War as teenagers and met here in Jerusalem. And me and my uh, seven and six siblings all uh, live and raise our families here in Israel. So we try to keep the English, but otherwise we're, we're Sabra on the inside. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you grew up in Jerusalem uh, and, and ultimately... Uh, like all Israelis, you served in the IDF, the army. Um, yeah, I grew up in Jerusalem. And my service, I, I like to say, it didn't start in the IDF. My service started years before as a youth volunteer on the local ambulance service here in Jerusalem. When Ellie would take me along as a, as a young teenager before I had any training um, to learn how to save lives. And that's where I got hooked. And then in the army afterwards, uh, um, of course, uh, like every Israeli, we did our three-year service. Um, served as a, as a medic and actually just got discharged last year after 23 years of, uh, of active reserves um, where we served as a, as a medic through the... So in the last 23 years, <laughs> there's actually been, unfortunately, there's been a lot of action. Um, yeah, yeah, I think, I think it's, 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 it's an honor. Uh, it, it, I think more than honor, it's my duty as an Israeli, someone who lives here. And I think that's something very unique and special in Israel is that when you go into do your active reserves and uh, over these years there was a second Lebanese war in 2006 and the big Ramallah operation in 2002 or 3 and and uh, uh, and and other wars um cast lead and and uh, what was that called uh, protective edge right. and Lebanon and, and 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 just so many operations here to differ from other places is you're literally protecting homes so it's it's our duty to run out and do this, and, and an honor to take part in this. And, and yes, over the years, I've participated in, in my active reserves as a combat medic in the infantry units. Um, How did that experience prepare you for, for this for this? Well, I don't know if it prepared venture. me. I think it's, 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 it's all combined in each other. I think it's part of the story of the life in Israel. I mean, it, it, the, the life of the military in Israel plays a role for those who are active in it, 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 it like it's embroidered with your civilian life. Just like the medical response in the field in Israel is very different from other places in the world where the military and the civilian worlds connect because it's so close to home. Because when we're going to the front lines here, the front lines are a half hour drive away. And the front lines, um, if, so, if a soldier gets injured, he's being transported afterwards by a civilian ambulance to, to the hospital, to the civilian hospital. So it's very different here. I think it's very, it's very, it, it really represents the life here in Israel and especially in our field. So like I said, I started when I was 14, but afterwards it, it just was, 
all part of each other. So you have your active reserve service and then you're back home and back to life and doing what we're doing. I, uh, throughout my life, I've been in the world of emergency medical services. It's not something that uh, I just decided to do on the side, this planned or not. This, uh, this was uh, um, what, what life rolled out for me. I think it also goes back to even before that. I mean, when you think about what, what drives people into their fields and what fields they choose to work in and develop in, I think it all goes back to your childhood and, and, and things that affected you then. And I know that me as a child was when I was, it must have been nine years old. Here in Jerusalem, like I said, I lived in Bait Vagan and I went to school. I used to take the bus every day to school. And coming back one day from, uh, from school, I was in third grade. Uh, I learned in Noam uh, school in Giva Chaul, and I would take the bus home, and I was waiting at the bus stop. You took the bus home in third grade? Yeah, it's, I, I could <laughs> never imagine doing the same with my kids today, but then days were different th- back then. We have listeners now in, in 35 <laughs> countries, and 34 of them probably are like, what are you, nuts? <laughs> well, you know, Israeli mentality, we're sabras. There uh, you go. <laughs> we, we live on the edge. <laughs> <laughs> Literally on the edge. <laughs> we, we, we get, we get the, you know, we, we, we uh, give our kids, you know, good uh, confidence. There we go. And my parents did the same, and I would take the bus back from, from school, and I was waiting at the bus stop, nine years old, third grade, after school, and there's this little playground behind the bus stop. And I, I, I know I'm just thinking about how much homework I have and how much I'm going to play with my friends instead of doing homework. And I, I spot this little girl behind the bus stop and, and suddenly she comes running out from behind the bus stop, runs across the sidewalk and right into the street. And right in front of my eyes, I see this little girl who couldn't have been more than six years old get hit by a bus. And... This place is literally a block away from where we're sitting right now, right under where the bridge is on the entrance to Jerusalem today, where the bus stops are there today. Back then, there wasn't a bridge, but the bus stops were there. And I can remember crystal clear like it was yesterday. I'm sitting there, and after seeing this horrific thing, she's lying on the ground. People all around are screaming and yelling, running around her, not knowing what to do. This is before the days of cell phones, shouting to buildings that are nearby for someone to call for an ambulance. And it felt like forever, and nobody knew what to do there. I remember uh, the only thing I felt at that moment was, boy, I wish I had superpowers at that moment. But actually, the only thing I actually did, I ran away. I ran and ran and ran. And about an hour later, I got home. And I didn't sleep that night. And the next day, when we came to school, they gathered us in the Bet Midrash, and they started talking to us. Turns out that this little girl was in the first grade of my school, and she didn't survive this accident. And I had no idea at that point how this would affect my life. But I didn't know, I'm I'm gonna do something. I was never a real big star at school, okay? Um, As an understatement. But I, I got to do something. I said, I'll become a doctor. But, you know, at the age of nine, it's a long way. And, and after a few years, when I was about 14, Ellie Beer, who we were very good friends from the neighborhood, he's a couple years older than me. He's the, just for the listeners, he's the other founder of uh, United Cell. President, and, President founder and founder of United Cell. Of the organization. And we were very close friends. And he said, you know, come. I'm, I used to volunteer in the local ambulance here. So come with me for ride-alongs. Back then, nobody would check credentials. I was a big kid, so nobody was really worrying about my me being underage, under like 16, even though I was 14. 
And I got an ambulance and I started riding along and it just felt so right. It felt we were doing something good. We were helping people. Now that was with Mugin David Adom, which is the national EMS system of Israel. So that 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 that's the you know paid, you know f- it's the government, government funded service. Absolutely, exactly. Yeah, okay, absolutely. And I then following that, I had many years in that system. I started volunteering. There's a youth volunteer. Then went to the army. Came every weekend from the army. I'd come home and go volunteer in the ambulance there, and 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 be very active. And right after the army, of course, naturally, immediately I enrolled to start working there. I went and finished my uh, civilian EMT training after the army, enrolled and started working back in 96 on the ambulance service there, um, full-time as an EMT dispatcher, worked my way up the ranks there, managed the regional dispatch center for Jerusalem, and then also became uh, the national um, headquarters of the organization of Magen David Adom. So I have 20 years of the government service on, on, on my back. And throughout this process, we also we understood that as good as what we were doing and as good as the service it was, it was good but not perfect, if so to speak. And this is in 1990? This was back in the late 90s. Okay. Late 90s. And at the beginning, in mid-2000, at the beginning of 2000, we, it occurred that, that what we're doing is good, but it's not good enough. I mean, the ambulances were good and the equipment was good. The only problem was, actually there are two problems. Number one was that even if we had the best ambulance and best equipment, it just took us too long to get to places because of traffic, because of not enough ambulances, because there isn't an ambulance on every street, because that's just reality. I don't expect there to be an ambulance on every street. And it would take us time to get to these, to these calls. Time, that's, I mean, every minute that goes by, every second that goes by when somebody's in cardiac arrest or choking or, 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 or is bleeding, and, and this is the, time is, is, is life. I mean, without oxygen going to your brain, you can only survive for three, four minutes. Ambulance response times, not only in Israel, but all around the world, are around the seven, eight, 10 minutes. Yeah, I remember that, uh when I first was introduced to the organization and I met Ellie, there was, there was a, a pretty famous story that he went through, um, which sort of triggered this. Exactly. Maybe you can tell us yeah, that story. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The story, which, which really was the straw that broke the camel's back, if th- so to speak, in this was that there was a call in our neighborhood of a little girl that was choking, or a little boy, I can't even remember what it was, I think it was a little boy, that was choking, and Ellie was on a shift, uh, in Jerusalem, and they had been dispatched to our neighborhood from Hadassah on Mount Scopus. And it took them 22 minutes to drive through Jerusalem traffic to get to our neighborhood. And they started CPR on this child. And a doctor... After they got there. Yeah. Right. The child wasn't breathing, had no pulse. They started CPR on a doctor that lived across the street, saw the ambulance, and like a good neighbor, what does a good neighbor do? Come and help. So he immediately came and offered his help and tried to assist with the CPR efforts. And unfortunately, they weren't successful. But it occurred to Ellie that had this doctor that we knew from the neighborhood known about this 22 minutes earlier, he would have run across the street, maybe with a simple Heimlich maneuver, saved this kid's life. So Ellie went to our station manager and told him, listen, we're a bunch of guys that live in this neighborhood. We volunteer in the station plenty of times a week. 
why don't you like give us like a pager or a radio or whatever it is, and there's something in our neighborhood when you're dispatching an ambulance, then we'll respond in the meantime until the ambulance comes. And the manager, like a good union manager, looks at him and tells him, in Hebrew, of course, kid, don't tell me how to do my work. And threw him out of the office, basically. So Ellie, um, using a very famous old technology called chutzpah, <laughs> it's a wild invented, form of audacity. Invented, invented in Israel. <laughs> <laughs> Went and just got his father to bring on his next trip from America to police scanners. And we punched in. I remember to this day the frequency number back then. It was 164285. was the frequency number of the radio, the ambulance in Jerusalem. And we just started listening to the radio. And whenever somebody was not on shift or back home in the neighborhood, they were listening. And when something would happen in the neighborhood, we'd coincidentally show up. For the ambulance. You know, when I used to serve back in my youth uh, in Teaneck, New Jersey, so if we did that, if we just showed up to a, to a scene without being dispatched to the scene, we'd have our heads handed to us. Same here. Okay. Except we, I said, coincidentally showed up. <laughs> Every I mean, we time. We happened to be right. there. Um, yeah. And, and, and a short while after we started this, there was, a, there was a call literally like two buildings down from Ellie's father's bookstore. And Ellie was there and immediately ran out. And he had no medical equipment with him or anything. It was a pedestrian that was struck by a car, an elderly person. And he gets to him and he's massively hemorrhaging from the, from the neck. And Ellie just grabbed his kippah, his yarmulke, and stopped the bleed. And held it for 15 minutes. After 15 minutes, the ambulance shows up. They take the patient to Hadassah Hospital, to the trauma unit. A few days later, Ellie Beer gets a phone call. Are you Ellie Beer? You treated this and this person in this accident. Ellie started getting worried that... He's in trouble, but no, it turns out it's the family of this person. They said he's, uh, he's, uh, um, he woke up in the hospital and he's uh, recuperating, and they really just wanted to thank him. And at any end, they said, okay, this is it. This is the right thing to do. Legal, not legal. Uh, we couldn't be bothered by technicalities like that. It saved lives. And that's what we started doing. And this started in Jerusalem, and it went on. This is, again, you, the, the official starting mo point or starting year it was this in is what 1989 year? this was in 1989 oh the official is 2006 okay. during the second lebanese war but this was the unofficial establishment of the organization it was no registration no organization no nothing it was just a bunch of guys with scanners yeah and and you know the idea didn't the idea of hatsala didn't even start in israel hatsala for those who don't know means rescue in hebrew and it didn't start in Israel. It's not Ellie Beer and Dovi that started in Israel. Hatzalah actually started in the late 60s in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, by, by a big rabbi called Herschel Weber. Hatzalah. Right, but, but there's no connection. No, no, not, it's just, just no. It's the same word, but it's not. Hatzalah no is, is like a general world like saying cola. Right. There's Pepsi-Cola and Coca-Cola and RC-Cola and Schweppes-Cola. It's, it's, it means rescue. When somebody needs help in the Jewish world, they say help, they say Hatzalah. Got it. And, and that's what it is. And we said it works in New York. Ellie said it works in New York, in Williamsburg. They're doing an amazing job there. We can do this here as well. And, that, and said, they have the radios there, same idea. And, and it started. And he started it here. And it started ultimately in the Orthodox neighborhoods. In Jerusalem and then in B'nai Brak and in other places in Israel. As local, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, like a local movement of, of the volunteers on the government ambulance service that we're just doing this extra service in the community. So it started in the Orthodox communities in all these neighborhoods. And the turning point, the real milestone, was actually in 2006. 2006, 
Israel was undergoing the Second Lebanese War. Um, for those who aren't familiar, it was a, a matter of a third of the population of the country, in the northern part of the country, over two million people, sitting in shelters for 34 days, um, showered with over almost 8,000 missiles from Hezbollah over the northern part of Israel. Hundreds of fatalities, injuries. But more than that, it was also just a lot of the elderly population that were sitting in the shelters weren't getting their basic needs of getting to their doctor, to their, um, you know, their family practitioner, to give them their prescription for their blood pressure medication, for their diabetes, for whatever they needed. They couldn't get out to pharmacies to get their medication. And these patients were, were and these people were, were turning into patients. And the municipalities weren't able to provide all the, the, all the best services for these people for lack of um, preparedness, for lack of manpower. Reality, it's war. So volunteers from Hatzalah in Yerushalayim and Ibn Nebrak and Haifa and other places all came up north to help. And it was actually nice because families of, uh, of volunteers from Hatzalah up north sent their families down to, to spend time in the houses of volunteers from Hatzalah in Jerusalem and in B'nai Brak and in other places. And the volunteers went up to serve and help. The only problem was there wasn't any communications between the volunteers from B'nai Brak and the volunteers from Jerusalem and the volunteers from Jerusalem and the ones from Tiberias because each one had their own radio system. Each one had their own. So what we did was Ellie got all of these coordinators of these little Hatzalah teams from the different Orthodox communities gathered in a, in a shelter in Chadera one night during the war and said, it's time we all start working together. And a few decisions were made that night. Number one is that everyone is uniting to one organization, which will be established as a serious organization, professionally registered as an emergency medical service, get our training you know, and everything, and called it United Hatzalah. But another decision was made that night, and that was that this won't only be any longer a service only for the Orthodox community by Orthodox married men and, and like, like typical Hatzalah in other places in the world. But this is going to be something that is open for ever, anyone in Israel. And over the years, United Hatzalah, the meaning is really uniting the different walks of life of people in Israel, all the cross-section. Today we have over 5,000 volunteers Fast forward, we're over 5,000 volunteers throughout the country, really representing the cross-section of life in Israel. It's Orthodox men, secular men, women, Jews, Arabs, Muslims, Christian, Bedouin, Druzim, from every community in Israel. You have volunteers of Hatzalah, of United Hatzalah, serving in their communities, helping the people that need the help right there next to them, for the very simple reason. Ambulances take too much time. Ambulances don't save people. It's people that save people. And the person who can save you is the one right across the street or in the door next door to you. I know that your goal is to respond <clears throat> in 90 seconds. 90 seconds. 90 seconds or less. How, Correct. How frequent is that? So how, how often do you reach so that number? Actually, just to put things into perspective, ambulance response times are anywhere between 10 minutes and 25 minutes throughout Israel. We respond today to over 1,500 calls every single day throughout Israel with an average response time of three minutes. 
wow. throughout the country. This is unprecedented anywhere in the world on, on, on scale, as in emergency medical services in the world are learning from us today how to do this. And I'll tell you more than that, in certain areas where we have our network of volunteers tight enough, we're down to 90 seconds. And when I talk about 90 seconds, I don't mean from the moment the dispatch hung up the phone and dispatched, but from the moment the dispatcher picked up the phone and said, what's your emergency? Till the moment somebody comes through the door, I'm talking 90 seconds. At the heart of, of your success in solving <clears throat> the problem of matching up a rescuer that's nearby with a patient in need is today technology. And you've, you've developed some unique technology as you've built this organization out. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, technology, I would say on the spectrum of technology, we're talking about real technology like apps. And on the, on the other end, we're talking about technology of innovative thinking of how to get to the patient faster. So because having an app is nice, but not enough. But let's go, let's go to that. So before the app even, the concept of getting to the patient faster, I can take this just so anyone can understand, is like when you order pizza, it comes on a motorcycle, so it doesn't stand in traffic, so that the pizza can get there really hot. Same thing, on that analogy, I can say if we can do it for pizza, why not for saving lives? And that's what Ellie said years and years ago. And the concept of the AmbuCycle, which is a motorcycle, a moped, that has a box on the back with all of the medical equipment that's in an ambulance, except for the stretcher, gets there really, really fast, regardless of rush hour traffic, an ambulance is standing in traffic, the volunteer zips through traffic on the sidewalk between the cars and to the patient really, really fast and starts the treatment on the patient. But how does he know about it? But, but before we get to how we know yeah. about it, so w when did your first m motorcycle? I think that was in like late 90s, early 2000s. Really? Wow. Yeah, so, late, so really before, before. Yeah, before, yeah, yeah. before yeah. it was even established formally. We just, it was totally illegal. We just <laughs> took these mopeds put on a red light and a nice box in the back. And I guess the police assumed that it was legal because who would be right in his mind to start going lights and sirens with a motorcycle and look so official and not be authorized. But I guess that's the way to do things in Israel. <laughs> we, we as, as, in general, we believe as, as a way of thinking that we prefer to do and apologize if needed than wait for the authorization because people don't like change. And I think that's a lot connects to also oh, Israeli innovation, startup nation, call, call, call it what you may. I think it's about getting things done. Don't wait for, for someone to ask for it. Don't wait for someone to approve. Do it. Prove the concept. And then it's much easier to make it legal. It's easier to, 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 to tweak it and make it legal. And it's also okay for us to apologize sometimes if we went a bit too far. It's okay. So you, you got these mopeds, these motorcycles, um, and you're saying before, so you have the tech, you have the, the transportation of how to slip through traffic and, and get to the location, but how do they find out about the So call? So I'll, I'll take you back. Scanners are expensive. 2004, <laughs> take you back to 2004, before the days of iPhone, before anybody could imagine what a smartphone was, and I was even working for the government service still, I offered them this concept that was sleeping on this idea, these new phones came out back in the day, the Nokia. I think it was the N95 or E61 that were, were you know, regular phones running a Symbian system. And 
and they had a GPS component on them. Except when you press the GPS, the only thing you got were coordinates. So that's nice. But what do you do with that? And it occurred to me that if I could take these GPS components and sort of build a system that can show me where these people are, I could do one and one and see where the call is and where the person is. Because if you look at the world of emergency services, period, not even medical, you belong to a certain region. You come from Teaneck. You know that the volunteers in Teaneck belong to Teaneck. But when they drive to New York City, they won't know about anything that's going on around them. And the services in New York won't know that they're there. And you might be standing right next to you in, 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 in Starbucks getting yourself a coffee. And there might be someone out on the sidewalk that, that is in cardiac arrest and you won't even know about it. And they won't know that you're there. And that's, that's terrible. I mean, in our day and age, if there's GPS. So it, what really triggered it was there was a call here in Eilat. There was a medic, a paramedic that was on holiday in, with his family in a hotel in Eilat. And he was having lunch or breakfast, whatever it was, in the hotel with his family in the dining room. And the swimming pool, which is like 30 seconds away from him, there's a child that drowned. And he, he was aware of this only when he saw the ambulance team come run through the lobby. And of course, as soon as a medic sees an ambulance team run through the lobby, he immediately goes to join them and see what he can help with. And they treated the child and took him to the hospital. It took them six or seven minutes to get there. Had he known about this, and he had this phone that had GPS on it. So clearly nobody could think of it. So I thought of this idea that if we could create a system that could find these people unrelated to their natural base or city or community that they work in, volunteer in, operate in, and we can connect that with any incident that happens throughout the country, we could be saving here precious minutes and get to any emergency really, really fast. And we went to a company in Israel, back then called Matrix, and in Herzliya. And I, I wrote a book of ideas, like a notebook of different ideas of what my dream was. And they took it and we had a great meeting with them. And they came back to me and said, it's doable. So I was ecstatic. And then they said, we only need a million dollars for it. And then you were depressed. <laughs> I wasn't depressed yet, okay. no. I, so I went back actually to my employers in Magandavira Dome and I offered them this and I said, listen, this is the next big thing. You're the government service and, and they literally threw me down the stairs and said, you're crazy. It's a waste of money. It's not going to happen. It's science fiction. Forget about it. So I said, okay. And then I went to my best friend, Ellie, and said, and he says, you're crazy. It's science fiction. I love it. <laughs> Let's go find the money for it. And Ellie went out and, 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 and wrote a few uh, foundations or whatever. And one came back to us. The Moskowitz, Cherna, Cherna Moskowitz, came back to us and says, I love this idea of innovation that can save lives. Here's your million dollar check. And we went and started working. And within less than a year, we had a model working. This is what of, year again? I'm just trying to keep this. This is 2005. Okay. 
uh, mid 2005, around that time. So you were in Kuwait. This is before the official. organization was even established officially. Okay. This is like literally at the beginning. And, and we have a prototype working. And suddenly you have a Nextel. People know it in America as Nextel here called, called Meals. It was these digital radios that had a GPS component on them and little Nokia phones that had a GPS. And suddenly it doesn't matter if you work in Jerusalem and you're in Tel Aviv on the beach or you're in Tiberias and whatever, if there's an emergency right next to you, we'd punch it into the system and it would immediately locate the nearest by volunteers. And <clears throat> fast forward just a side mark is that for years my wife uh, makes fun of me that had I wasn't too focused on Hatzalah and saving lives as a paramedic would be worth $70 billion today. Because I was essentially, about to say. Essentially what we did was, and people can understand this, is what we did was we invented Uber before they even invented the smartphone. Right. I was about to say that there's <laughs> there's companies out there today that are worth, you know, exactly. 80 to $90 billion that are doing exactly the same thing for profit with taxis and or with drivers. Exactly. And and, and we were so focused on, on our, driven on our mission of, of saving lives. We weren't even thinking about what do you call it? Uh, um, um, rights, um, uh, you know, your different rights and patents and, and that kind of you stuff. You should have patented it. <laughs> it's okay. It's all it's, good. We save many lives. It's good enough for me. Um, and, and, and it really started working and it, it started revolutionizing the whole concept of saving lives in the community. Suddenly you could be, you don't even need to be listening to the radio. You could have your phone with your app on and you can be in your office, you're a lawyer, or an accountant, or a shop owner, or whatever it is, and you don't need the radio going the whole time, you could just get the incident to your app and boom, you're out. There's one fundamental flaw that, that I see in this, and I'm wondering how you solved it. When people have an emergency, they dial 101, which is the 911 version in Correct. Israel. And they get connected to Magen David Adom, the Israeli government-run EMS system. They don't get connected to you guys. So well, how do you insert yourself well, between them? Let me, let me tell you that today, thanks to work that we've, we've done over the years with the Ministry of Health and in the Knesset, we for years claimed in the Knesset, in the Israeli parliament, that if there is a certified medic, EMT, doctor, next to an emergency here, there is no monopoly on this emergency information because that mother that has a choking child does not care if the guy coming in through the door is wearing a Magen David Adon vest, a Hatzalah vest, or even if it's a gorilla that learned how to do a Heimlich maneuver. She wants her child to be saved. And after years of lobbying this and fighting for this, about a year ago, the Ministry of Health regulated it, and today, any call that goes to Magandavidadom will automatically pop up in our dispatch center here. And technology is technology, we've connected the systems, and the vast majority, I can't say that it's 100%, but the vast majority of the calls today that go to Magandavidadom will automatically appear here in our dispatch center and allow us to dispatch the United Hatzalah volunteers automatically, to these incidents. So that's another gap that we've bridged over almost perfectly. There's still a way to go. Because like I said earlier, people don't like change. Israel is unique in that it's a very small country, but it also has very different terrains. We have the mountains and we have 
we have the desert, we have the beach, and we have agriculture and different types of terrain. How do you reach people in areas, I mean, we have, we have oceans and we have uh, huge lakes. How do you reach people you know, who are drowning in the middle of the Kinneret? So, uh, so that's a fantastic question. So you know how to tell us community. You know, that's all is community. And community can be urban, it can be suburban, it can be rural, it can be in the farms, the villages, the yishuvim, the settlements, whatever it is. And, and we want to provide the tools for these volunteers to respond. So in the heart of the big cities, um, we have, of course, the ambicycles, which can cut through, through traffic. But that's only part of the population. In the mountain areas, in the Judean desert, in the mountain areas in the forests, we have these unique ATVs that have stretchers mounted on them. We have, in the Kineret, in the Sea of Galilee, we have rescue boats, which are able to go out, and actually every season, as we speak now, it's in the water, in season, over Passover, over Pesach, it saved more than 25 people. Just last week. Just last week. Not all of them were drowning. Unfortunately, there was one case of a person who drowned, and we assisted in the efforts of searching for the person with our special sonar system on the boat, we assisted the police there, and and but the Kinneret has a interesting phenomenon, natural phenomenon that has very strong underwater currents and winds. That if you get on on one of these rafts or a little boat, inflatable boats, within two minutes you could be 300 feet away from the from the shore. And so a lot of the work that our volunteers do there are, are rescue these people that they don't get to the situation that the boat deflates and they drown. Um, and get carried away by the underwater currents. So every every season, about 300 to 350 people are rescued by this boat alone in the Kinneret, which is officially the only medical rescue boat in the Kinneret. The police and everyone all work with United Hatzala there as we're providing the service. Obviously, I didn't even mention this throughout the whole discussion here. Everything of everything of everything that's being done, we do for totally free. It's about to get to that. This is this is an expensive operation. Is, I mean, you've yeah, got five thousand we'll, we'll people. Talk, we'll talk about how to fund it, but but first of all, the service we're doing is free. This is being the good neighbor, the person who's right there. So we're talking about the boats and the ATVs and 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 motorcycles and and bicycles, these electric bicycles and ambulances and and everything is being done for free because we believe that that just like as if you're walking down the street by the market, by the shuk, and you see an elderly person with his shopping bags, trips and suddenly one of his shopping bags falls and all his oranges spill out on the sidewalk. What do you do? You, of course, immediately go and help him out with, pick up his uh, groceries, right? And when you're done, of course, you give him a bill, right? Oh no, we don't give him a bill. Same thing as Hatzalah, but on a whole different crazy level. Because we have 5,000 Michiganers, 5,000 crazy people that will just care and want to help their neighbors. You mentioned before about the unity and and how you have Jews and Arabs and, and Christians and Druze and all, all people of multiple denominations who come together to do this. Can you tell us a story about how one of your teams that may not be the same religion or creed as another, as one of your patients, um, how did that work out? So it actually happens all the time. It happens all the time um, because... In Israel, there are many cities where the Jews and Arabs live together. In Yerushalayim. Ramla. In Ramle, where I live, exactly. And in our team alone, we have Jews and Arab volunteers together. It's truly an amazing thing. And you see 
this, uh, the most interesting thing is, I'll, I'll just give one example for myself. Why, why go far? On Shabbat, a few weeks ago, Shabbat, and I observe Shabbat, and, and uh, I only drive to my emergency calls, and we have one neighborhood in Ramla, which is totally Arab. It's called the village, Joarish. It's 100% Arabs, Muslims. And on Shabbat, we get a call on Shabbat afternoon, uh, late morning, just as I'm ending services, of a cardiac arrest. I immediately drop my talit, jump in the car, drive over there. I don't drive a motorcycle because I'm not active enough for six calls a day. So I just have my equipment in my car. And I get into the village and we start treatment. Me and another two volunteers that show up with a motorcycle, with an ambicycle, we start CPR. And at a certain point we regain the pulse. The intensive care unit is there and they transport the patient to the hospital. And as I'm getting my stuff together, back into the trunk of the car, one of the family members, he must have been in his 50s, comes over to me and he looks at me and he tells me, you're religious. And I say, yeah. He says, and you, now they know how the religious community is. They know we don't drive on Shabbat. They don't. And he says, and you drove in your car on Shabbat and I'm dressed, I'm not dressed in any uniform. I'm wearing my white shirt and my, and my blue pants and my white yarmulke for Shabbat. And he says, and you drove on Shabbat to come here into the village to help us, the Arab family. He's standing there literally with tears in his eyes. He says, I can't even imagine that. I can't even understand that. And he literally gave me a hug. And I was like, I, I'm sitting here, I've got literally like, it's such a human moment there. And I'm like, of course. I tell him, of course. I mean, what's the question? I know that the Arab volunteer that lives two blocks away from me would do the same for me. And, and, and I think that it's not one of these heroic stories, but it really represents what happens here every single day. You see Jews, Jews in Jerusalem running into East Jerusalem to help Arabs in need. And you see Arabs from East Jerusalem serving in the ultra-Orthodox communities because they border with each other there. And, and, and it's just one community. It's, it's, I think maybe it's also the, the type of people that, that volunteer. Uh, the common denominator here, of course, is something that's uncontroversial. So it's easy, maybe, in a way. But it takes a different human being. And I think that the United Hatzalah people are, are really are the ones that give me hope for humanity, if so to speak, <laughs> for lack of a better term. But, but really, it really is true. Once you get a uh, purpose that is uncontroversial and you get people involved with it, they actually get to see how, how on the other side it's real people. And you don't need to go between Jews and Arabs. We know that in the Israeli society, there's big anti against ultra-Orthodox, Haredim, and this and suddenly you see these kibbutznikim that, 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 that have nothing to do with religion and hate Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox community, suddenly say, hey, these people are actually pretty cool. And you know what? They're actually doing a lot of good and suddenly you see them become best friends. And I just come back the other night, we had a, a meeting of our uh, district, uh, of our team directors, 80 team directors from around the country. And we did it in Kibbutz Galed. It's a kibbutz, Shomer Atzair kibbutz, totally secular, has nothing to do with religion, kibbutz, in, uh, 
in the northern part of Israel, and you see ultra-Orthodox Haredim with peyot down to their knees and black uh, and black and white clothing, and you see the kibbutznikim, and you see the Arabs, and the Druzim that came from Ramat Golan, from north Ramat Golan on the Syrian border from Bukata. There, and everyone's sitting together in this great barbecue, having the best time together as, as one big family. I think that really is, is an amazing thing. Yeah, the media is not going to pick up on that. It's, it's a shame because it's, it's such a great equalizer and, and such a great example of, of what peace really should be, which is, let's see through the veneer at, at the, the souls of each person and the soul of, of every human being is special. They're all God's creations and they're all trying to make the world a better place. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, there's no question. I mean, of course the media doesn't pick up on it because it's not interesting. It's not bad. Media likes to show bad. In general, but you picked up on it. <laughs> there we go. So let me ask you just a couple more questions. I, I know that I want to respect your time, but yeah. um, your technology is, is is obviously great. It's very effective. You've proven it, but it's technology that EMS systems around the world could use. So are you guys actively out there trying to license or or introduce your technology to you know any? EMS system that really wants to take the organization to the next, you know, next generation. Yeah, so some of it, so some of it, we have our, our hands in as, and, and as ours, and some we're just buying off the shelf today. I mean, we were we were the pioneers. Technology really developed. It's a highway around us, startup nation. And at a certain point, we understand we're not a startup company. We're we're a startup and social innovation, social entrepreneurship. That's the way we, we call it. You're the professional, um, uh, but but the, the truth is that today we're even buying technology from from other places as well. When we see something good, and a lot of companies actually come to us to experiment by us, and we like to be innovative and the first ones out there with it. So we do all kinds of partnerships with a lot of different companies. Whatever will help us to get the patient faster, bridge that gap, get better service, and save more lives. We're in. So some where of course, and of course we showcase this stuff globally. And today this has been implemented in, in a number of countries around the world, in Colombia, and in, in Uganda now, and, and, in, and in the US, and in Panama, and in other places, the same exact concept of, of, of combining community and technology and, 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 and professionalism, thinking out of the box, or thinking within the box of what we can do with, with what's there, is, is really revolutionizing the whole concept of emergency medical response. What does the future hold? What, what are you thinking in terms of Hatzalah 3.0. <laughs> so I, I think it's a combination. First of all, we really want to close that gap in, in, in our human network of lifesavers in Israel and get to that 90-second goal everywhere in Israel. And of course, as our uh, chairman, Mark Gerson, and, and that's been with us for many, many years since the start, says this is not ours to keep. This is Israel's gift to the world. And, and the idea is really to share this because people are people are people. And helping communities around the world, whether they're Jewish or not, help themselves, will end up circling back to us in Israel. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to show how Israel is innovative also in this field. We're known for technology and irrigation and other things also in life-saving. Here's an idea. I, I, uh, at the recent Our Crowd Summit here in Israel, there was a, a, a company uh, that they're backing, uh, which has a drone technology. Because one of the problems of getting to fires is lack of information. And, you know, I don't know what percentage of, of fire calls are, are, are not real fires, working fires. But they would dispatch 
the, uh, the drone immediately, look at the location, uh, and assess not just is there a fire, but even if there is a fire, what's happening? Yeah, where's it spreading? And give them this 360 degree uh, view. I'm wondering if that's, <laughs> if that's something that, that may be on your, on your radar. Well, everything is on our radar. Anything, like I said, anything that will help saving lives. We actually do activate today 10 drones. Really? We activate 10 drones we today. Um, licensed drones. We're, we're actually not those freelancers out there. We have real numbers on the tails and certified pilots uh, of drones here that we use for purposes of command and control in major incidents. If there's a big bus accident or, or a disaster like that, or for the missing persons. People go out wow. and then there are search missions. So we will send out drones to give, you know, eyes in the sky to help with that as well. But like I say, if there's good technology that will help us get faster, better, we'd love to partner with anyone. Funding. So, so this is expensive. And, and I'm wondering, you know, what, what is your budget? So our budget is about 100 million shekels a year, which is about 25 million U.S., a little more than $25 million U.S. a year, um, comes Mostly from donations. I would say over 90% of it comes from donations. We're very proud to say that about 30% of that we, don't, we, we raise here in Israel. Really? Yes, that's very, very unique. Um, we have a lot of the Israeli society here from, from regular people to big corporate companies that are involved. I call it smart investments for the corporate companies because it's not only giving us money, but we actually get them to train groups of, of their employees to become volunteers. So that in the company, during the day, they're helping if something happens there, and after hours, they're helping in the community, and this is like a, a group effort. Um, obviously, a lot of donations come in from the US, and we also uh, provide some site services that we try to sell, like you were saying, like licensing, training, things that we can share outside in the world. Whatever will help us create sustainability here and the services which are always free here. Anything that will have to do with life-saving emergencies in Israel will always be for free. We will never solicit. We will never. We don't even. In many cases, like you said, they call the government service, and we show up first. They don't even know that a United Hatzal volunteer walked in. They know help showed up, and that's good enough for us. How do uh, how do people become members? So, you come from the community. You hear. You have a friend, or you you have a story that really pushed you to decide that you want to come forward and you'll come and enroll. We will do all your training. We'll provide you with all of the training. It's a process. Uh, we will vet you and everything, make sure that you're legit, make sure that you're the right material because it is a commitment to become a volunteer. It's not your typical I'll volunteer in the hospital three hours once a week and give out food. That's important too, but it's a different type of volunteering. This is a 24 seven on call volunteer system, so we need to make sure that you're cut out for it. We'll train you, then we'll equip you, and you'll become a volunteer. And finally, how do people donate if they wanted to donate? So, it's quite simple. Let's go to our social media, go to our website. It's israelrescue.org, israelrescue.org, and you can see all the different opportunities to take part, become a partner, help support, get involved, share what we're doing, look at our Facebook channels, at our YouTube channels, at our Instagram, everything. We share a lot of the good work that the volunteers are doing every single day. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen a lot of your videos and they're, they're incredibly, they're powerful, they're moving. Um, because we, try to, we, we really try just to share, to, to how do you, what's the word in English for it, to, to take what's really going on with the real people 
the real volunteers and, and, and connect that to everyone else in the world. And the very special thing is, by the way, when you get involved, a lot of the donors actually get updates of what's going on with their partners. If you donated a motorcycle, so so you, you get updates of what the motorcycle is doing and what lives it's being saved. You get engaged with us. I warn everyone, it's highly addictive. It's highly addictive because once you see what you've done, that you saved that one person, you understand the meaning of what it is to save an entire world because the impact of saving a person is, 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 is far and out. It's, it's just look what happens when a person isn't saved, how it affects the family, the community, and, and, and all the surrounding people. When you do save, you, it's not only them, it's them, it's the community, and it's obviously generations to come. I mean, we're right now um, around the days of, of uh, Yom HaShoah and Memorial Day, and we see how the survivors, how one member of a survivor from a family, you see social media now, you look at these days, and you can see the pictures of the huge families, thank God, that came of these people, and you then understand the meaning of how saving one person saves an entire world. Amazing. IsraelRescue.org for any of our listeners who want to donate or learn more about the organization and and certainly if you go to Facebook or YouTube United Hatzalah of Israel United Hatzalah of Israel I, I encourage you it's very inspiring stories and what you've been doing here in, in my humble opinion really is changing the world and has the capacity to not only impact the people of Israel all the people who are living in, in our borders but also uh, to, to impact um, EMS systems around the world and lives around the world. So congratulations. Thank you very much for your time. And we wish you all, all, the, great, uh, all the great success. And um, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, more stories about, about how you guys have, have really uh, impacted uh, our world. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Startup Stories from the Startup Nation. I'm the host, Yigal Marcus. The associate producers are Moshe Raps and Avi Maklis, and the senior research analyst is Lior Levin. If you have a startup that you think we should feature on air, please email me at yigal.marcus at bernstein.com or at startupstoriesisrael at gmail.com. A big, very special thank you to my employer, Alliance Bernstein Investment Management and Research, who has been incredibly supportive of this initiative. And please share these podcasts with your friends, like us on Facebook, and please, please, please rate us on iTunes. Until next time, thank you for listening.